All right, let's talk about James Joyce's short story, The Dead. This is a short story that comes at the end of a short story collection called The Dubliners. Uh, and those stories, they're, they're not interconnected in a, in a plot sense, but they are interconnected in terms of themes and motifs. And so in some ways, The Dead is the culmination of the 15 stories that comprise Dubliners. Uh, in all of them, they're, they're very interior. They're about psychological uh, realizations that the characters have. They're not heavy on action. Uh, and they're all taking place in Dublin. And often they're about paralysis, about the inability of characters to move forward with their lives. Now, The Dubliners was James Joyce's first major published work. Uh, he went on after this to publish uh, several novels, uh, The Portrait of the Artist of a, as a Young Man, Ulysses, and Finnegan's Wake. And those are all each increasingly uh, more complex and difficult and less accessible works of, of modernism. Uh, his style became, I think, uh, increasingly self-conscious as he went on. Uh, now, he's considered one of the titans of 20th century literature, and uh, many people consider his book Ulysses to be the crowning achievement of modernism in the 20th century. Uh, the style that he has in The Dead is much more accessible, uh, though many of the same themes are here. So let's look at The Dead. Uh, we begin, this is during the holiday season. It's obvious, it's winter. They refer to the snow quite a lot. Uh, and it's an annual dance that uh, Miss Kate and Miss Julia, uh, the, the Morkin sisters, uh, throw along with their niece, Mary Jane, who they has come to live with them. So these three women who live together in this house, and uh, Mary Jane is an organist uh, uh, at, the, at the church, and they're all very musical. Uh, so they throw this dance every year, and their favorite nephew, Gabriel Conroy, uh, is there. And it, the, when the story starts out, uh, he, he hasn't come yet, and they're expecting him. And the, the gentlemen who come in, they uh, take their coats off downstairs. The women come upstairs. They've kind of uh, uh, arranged that so that it will be, things will run smoother when people come into the, uh, the party. Now look at when um, Gabriel does come in. This is around uh, page 2284 near the top. He continued scraping his feet vigorously while the three women went upstairs laughing to the ladies' dressing room. A light fringe of snow lay like a cape on the shoulders of his overcoat and like toe caps on the toes of his galoshes, and as the buttons of his overcoat slipped with a squeaking noise through the snow-stiffened uh, frieze, a cold, fragrant air from out of doors escaped from crevices and folds. So uh, Joyce is establishing this image and metaphor of snow, of cold, from the very beginning. And it's, it's associated with Gabriel. He is covered with it. And when he opens his coat, it's cold air escapes out. That's how infused he is with the cold and the snow. And again, that's an image that will recur throughout the story. Now, look at the exchange that happens between Gabriel and Lily. She's the caretaker's daughter. She's uh, working there essentially as a maid. And 
He says, tell me, Lily. Now, notice that, uh, I'm sure you did notice, that James Joyce does not use quotation marks. He didn't like quotation marks. They were He thought they were a modern affectation. Uh, so he just uses that dash to indicate a new speaker. Tell me, Lily, he said in a friendly tone, do you still go to school? Oh, no, sir, she answered. I'm done schooling this year and more. Oh, then, said Gabriel gaily, I suppose we'll be, you'll we'll be going to your wedding one of these fine days with your young man, eh? The girl glanced back at him over her shoulder and said, with great bitterness, the men that is now is only all palaver and what they can get out of you. Gabriel colored, as if he felt he had made a mistake, and without looking at her, kicked off his galoshes and flicked actively with his muffler at his patent leather shoes. So here's this moment. He's uh, just kind of making small talk. Uh, oh, are you in school? No. It's, oh, well, I'm sure we'll be going to your wedding. And she has this very bitter comment about, well, you know, there's no, she's not going to get married. The men are just for what they can get out of you. And he feels very embarrassed by that, but he doesn't really know how to respond. And what he does do is uh, then he took up a coin rapidly and uh, from his pocket. Oh, Lily, he said, thrusting it into her hands. It's Christmas time, isn't it? Uh, just, uh, here's a little... He walked rapidly towards the door. Oh, no, sir, cried the girl, following him. Really, sir, I wouldn't take it. Christmas time, Christmas time, said Gabriel, almost trotting to the stair and waving his hand to her in, de in a deprecation. The girl, seeing that he had gained the stairs, called out after him. Well, thank you, sir. So... He doesn't really, this exposes a kind of awkwardness. He doesn't know how to deal with this human situation. Uh, she said something uh, that uh, wasn't kind of nice and polite conversation, and it's thrown him off. And the only thing he knows how to do is kind of give her some money, and to, that's his way of saying that he's sorry. So we can see this awkwardness in Gabriel. He uh, didn't expect that kind of response for her. He doesn't know how to respond to it himself. It makes him uncomfortable. Uh, it exposes something about uh, a men that maybe he's uncomfortable with. Uh, he doesn't want to get involved in her personal life that way. Um, all, all of those things, and he doesn't really know, he doesn't really deal well with it. Uh, but it exposes he's really not on the same wavelength as Lily. He can't have a, a sympathetic conversation with her about this. Uh, so he has to just kind of brush it off and uh, give her some money and run out of the room. And he starts thinking about the speech he's going to make. He always makes a big speech at this party, and he's not sure. He says he was undecided, this is the top of 2285, about the lines from Robert Browning, for he feared they would be above the heads of his hearers. Some quotation that they could recognize from Shakespeare or from the melodies would be better. The indelicate clacking of the men's heels and the shuffling of their souls reminded him that their grade of culture differed from his. He would only make himself ridiculous by quoting poetry to them which they could not understand. That would, uh, They would think he was airing his superior education. He would fail with them, just as he had failed with the girl in the pantry, he had taken up a wrong tone. His whole speech was a mistake from uh, first to last, an utter failure. Uh, now notice that this, is, uh, this story is told in third person, uh, but at moments like this, we're really kind of getting into the head 
of the character. This is what's called free indirect discourse. Uh, that is, the narrator is speaking, is narrating, but in terms of, of the way that the character himself, in this case, would be thinking. It's his whole speech. Now, you could rewrite this as first person. Um, my whole speech is a mistake from first to last. But no, it's it's from outsides. But it's it so it has a kind of an objectivity to it. But it also kind of really gets into the subjectivity of the character. And Joyce did this quite a lot. He developed this uh, into a more kind of stream of consciousness style in Ulysses. Uh, but here, he's he's worried again. He's failing. He's there's this disconnect. He he doesn't want to seem superior. Uh, he doesn't want them to think of him as you know uh, failing some way. So this Robert Browning may be too esoteric for them. You know this is kind of very high intellectual kind of poetry. And remember Robert Browning was not hugely popular uh, until uh, you know originally. So he says maybe something more that everybody knows, like Shakespeare. That would be the, the way to go. Um, and it's, it's casting the self-doubt. And so we can see, and in fact, he makes the analogy to the, the girl in the pantry. He doesn't even remember her name. Um, but he feels like he's, um, he's doubting himself. He's out of step somehow. And notice the little detail that they say about his wife, Greta. It says that Greta caught a dreadful cold. Aunt Kate frowned severely and nodded her head at every word. Quite right, Gabriel, quite right, she said. You can't be too careful. Uh, but so, you know, she caught a cold, so you can't be too careful. And in fact, we find out that Gabriel wears galoshes, which are very European. And this is, uh, uh, we get, we're getting several indications that Gabriel doesn't quite fit in. He knows about Robert Browning and the other people at the, uh, the party don't. He wears galoshes, which are fashionable in Europe, but haven't really made their way to Ireland yet. Uh, also, you know, galoshes is about not, you can't be too careful. You wear them over your shoes to make sure that your feet don't get wet, that you don't get sick. And you can't be too careful is very much part of Gabriel. He is a very careful person. He tries to be, he, he, he is too careful, I think, at times. And he's contrasted with Freddie Malins, who's a, a guest at the party that the the uh, the ants, his ants, are kind of worried about because they're afraid that he might be screwed. That is Irish slang for drunk. They don't want him to be drunk at the party, so they send uh, uh, Gabriel there to make sure he's okay and, and and you know keep track of him. And two other important guests at the party are Mr. Brown. Uh, who is an elderly gentleman who's also in his own way an outsider, and uh, Mr. Bartell Darcy, who is a tenor, a singer. Uh, they will be wanting to have him sing all evening, though he kind of resists that. Now we get another very awkward uh, social interchange in the story between Gabriel and Miss Ivers. Uh, this starts at the top of 2290, they're dancing together, and Miss um, uh, Ivers says, I've, I have a crow to pluck with you. That's a, a bone to pick with you. That's a colloquial expression. With me, she nodded her head gravely. What is it? asked Gabriel, smiling at her solemn manner. Who is G.C.? answered Miss Ivers, turning his eyes upon, her eyes upon him. Gabriel colored, 
and was about to knit his brow as if he did not understand when she said bluntly, "'Oh, innocent Amy, I have found out that you write for the Daily Express. Now aren't you ashamed of yourself?' Uh, so she's find out he's written this column and he's not using his real name, just his initials, though not hard to find out, G.C. Gabriel Conroy, uh, for the, the this newspaper, and notice that he colored, he blushes, exactly as he did with Lily the caretaker. He's been found out. This time, it's not that he said something inadvertent. She's kind of uh, bringing the, the attack to him. Um, and he says... Uh, "'Why should I be ashamed of myself?' said Gabriel, blinking his eyes and trying to smile. "'Well, I'm ashamed of you,' said Miss Ivers, frankly. "'To say you'd uh, write for a rag like that, I didn't think you were a West Briton.' Now, a West Briton is uh, an Irish person who uh, didn't believe in Irish independence, who favored uh, being part of England.' Uh, so that's a serious uh, accusation here. I mean, that's an important political issue at the time of of, of whether Ireland will be independent of Britain. Uh, if you remember, uh, W. B. Yeats wrote uh, uh, several poems uh, about the Irish Revolution. So it's in that kind of climate uh, that this is happening. And so she's accusing him of of writing for essentially writing for the enemy here. And in the middle of the page, it says. He did not know how to meet her challenge. He wanted to say that literature was above politics, but they were friends of many years standing and their careers had been parallel, first at the university and then as teachers. He could not risk a grandiose phrase with her. He continued blinking his eyes and trying to smile and murmured lamely that he saw nothing political in writing reviews of books. Um... So he has this, you know, he thinks, well, there's nothing real. I'm I'm writing literary reviews. It's not a political thing. And uh, then we get, uh, of course, I was only joking. Come, we cross now. That's in the in the dance that they're doing. Um, and then she says, oh, Mr. Conroy, uh, will you come for an excursion to Anne, uh, to Aaron Isles this summer? We're going to stay there a whole month. It will be splendid out in the Atlantic. You ought to come. Mr. Clancy is coming, and Mr. Kil, uh, Kilkelly and Kathleen Kearney. It would be splendid for Greta, too, if she'd come. She's from Con uh, Connach, isn't she? Her people are, said Gabriel shortly. So now uh, the second uh, social uh, minefield that he's he's in is he's been invited to go out to this island uh West uh, in, in Western Ireland, and it's where his wife is from. Um, and he says, "Well, her her people from there. She's not. But that's, what does that mean? Her people are from there, but she's not. I mean, is, doesn't that her, what her ancestry is?" He, he's very awkward and shy about this. And the reason he doesn't want to go is that he he takes a trip to Europe. Uh, remember, he's very sophisticated and cosmopolitan. He wears galoshes like they do in Europe all of these things. Um, and uh, Miss Ivers asks him at the top of 2291, why do you go to France and Belgium, said Miss Ivers, instead of visiting your own land? Well, said Gabriel, it's partly to keep in touch with the languages and partly for a change. I haven't, uh, and haven't you your own language to keep in touch with? Irish? asked Miss Ivers. Well, said Gabriel, if it comes to that, you know, Irish is not my language. Their neighbors had turned to listen to the cross-examination. 
Gabriel glanced right and left nervously and tried to keep his good humor under the ordeal which was making him blush, uh, invade, making a blush invade his forehead. There again, that, that blush, that coloring. Uh, you haven't your own land to visit, continued Miss Ivers, that you know nothing of, your own people and your own country. Oh, to tell you the, uh, tell you the truth, retorted Gabriel suddenly, I'm sick of my own country, sick of it. Why? asked Miss Ivers. Gabriel did not answer, for his retort had heeded him. Why? repeated Miss Ivers. They, uh, they had to go visiting together, and uh, he had not answered her. Miss Ivers said warmly, Of course you've no answer. Gabriel tried to cover his agitation by taking part in the dance with great energy. He avoided her eyes, but, uh, for he had seen a sour expression in her face. But when they met in the long chain, he was surprised to feel his hand firmly pressed. She looked at him from under her brows for a moment, quizzically, until he smiled. Then, just as the chin, chain was about to start again, they're doing this kind of, 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 it's kind of uh, elaborate dance, uh, she stood on tiptoe and whispered in his ear, West Britain. Uh, so she's kind of getting, getting her digs in here. Um, now, all of this is, is uh, this hits a lot closer to home than the, the little incident with, uh, with Lily, the caretaker's daughter. This is his equal. This is somebody who was with him, you know, went through the university, is also a teacher. Um, and he's, he's very embarrassed about this, but she's exposing that um, he may not be as devoted to his country as she thinks he should be. And Irish nationalism was a very big issue. Again, we saw with W.B. Yeats, a, a lot of his poetry was uh, reviving the traditions of Irish folklore. And so, in refusing to go in a vacation in his own country, uh, in refuse in saying that Irish is not his language, that he's sick of his country, uh, all of this is again putting him on the outs. He's not comfortable uh, with where he is, and Miss Ivers has exposed this in him, uh, left him embarrassed, uh, and he's not able to just kind of give her some money and go away the way he did with Lily. And notice in the middle of. 2292, that when his wife, Greta, finds out about it, she's excited. Says, oh, do go, Gabriel, she cried. I'd love to see Galway again. You can go if you like, said Gabriel coldly. Uh, now, coldly, we've already seen symbolically the snow and the cold air in his coat is is associated with Gabriel here. And he begins thinking about his, his speech, um, at the bottom of the page, he says, How cool it must be outside. How pleasant it would be to walk out alone, first along the river and then through the park. The snow would be lying on the branches of the trees and forming a bright cap on the top of the Wellington Monument. How much more pleasant it would be there than at the supper table. So he's already thinking about being out alone by himself in the cold and how he would prefer that to the, 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 these awkward social situations he's in at the party. Um, and he begins thinking about the, the outline for his speech, you know, Irish hospitality, sad memories, the three graces, Paris, and a quotation from Browning. Uh, he repeated uh, to himself a phrase he had written in his review, one feels that one is listening to a tormented, to a thought-tormented music. Um, Miss Ivers had praised the review. Was she sincere? 
Had she really any life of her own behind all her propagandism? So now he's he's second guessing. You know, she liked it. You know, was that sincere? Was she making a dig at him? And he decides he wants to add something to his his speech. He says, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, the generation which is now on the wane among us may have had its faults, but for my part, I think it had certainly qualities of hospitality, of humor, of humanity, which the new and very serious." an hyper-educated generation that is growing up around us seems to me to lack. So that's aimed very much at Miss Ivers, you know, this this, uh, this younger, over-serious, hyper-educated, uh, you know, overly political generation. Uh, he, he's going to, you know, make a little dig at her uh, when he makes his speech. So that's how he's going to get back at her. But it turns out that Miss Ivers leaves before the the speech is given. Uh, in fact, they try to get her to to stay. They ask ask uh, Gabriel to try to convince her to stay, uh, but she's not going to. She's leaving early, and it's never clear how much of this is actually. Gabriel thinks that is it because of him. Is that just his own kind of narcissism projecting on it? Uh, it could be that he is just completely not on her wavelength, as he is, seems to be not on the lady's wavelengths uh, uh, all evening. And so when the dinner begins, they, of course, have to have Gabriel to carve the goose. He's the he's the reliable man here. He's the one that the, the ants want to deal with Freddie Malins. He's the one who's going to carve the goose. He's, in a way, the kind of the, the reliable man of the house. But at dinner, we get uh, a conversation going on uh, about opera and singing. And Mr. Brown says, on the top of 2292, 90, uh, 2297, excuse me, um, those were the days, he said, when there was something like singing to be heard in Dublin. Uh, so he talks about all the great singers that he had heard. Um, and... Uh, Mr. Bartell Darcy, who is himself a, a contemporary tenor, uh, doesn't like this being talked about, you know, back in the good old days, everything was better. He says, oh, well, said Mr. Bartell Darcy, I presume there are as good a singers today as there were then. Where are they? asked Mr. Brown defiantly. In London, Paris, Milan, said Mr. Bartell Darcy warmly. I suppose Caruso, for example, is quite good, if not better than any of the uh, men you have mentioned. Maybe so, said Mr. Brown, but I may tell you, I doubt it very, I doubt it strongly. So Mr. Brown is very much a traditionalist. He says, you know, back in the good old days, they could really sing none of the contemporary, you know, these kids with their crazy music, um, you know, that it's that kind of thing, uh, that the things used to be better and now they're, they're going downhill. Uh, and that's a, a theme that is important uh, generally in the, uh, in the story. Also, since Mr. Brown is a Protestant in a, a Catholic gathering here, uh, he has some some questions about the the, the church. He he's not familiar with it. Look at um, on page twenty two ninety eight. They talk about the um, the monks. He says he was astonished to hear that the monks never spoke, got up at two in the morning, and slept in their coffins. He asked why they did what they did it for. That's the rule of the order, said Aunt Kate firmly. Yes, but why? asked Mr. Brown. Aunt Kate repeated that it, that it was the rule, that was all. Mr. Brown still seemed not to understand. 
Freddie Mallins explained to him as best he could that the monks were trying to make up for the sins committed by all the sinners in the outside world. The explanation was not very clear for Mr. Brown, uh, for Mr. Brown grinned and said, I like the idea very much, but wouldn't a comfortable spring bed do them as well as a coffin? The coffin, said Mary Jane, is to remind them of their last end. Uh, so this image of the uh, the monks who sleep in a coffin, as Mary Jane says, to remind them of their last end, to remind them of their death. Remember, this is a story called The Dead. Um, and uh, Mr. Brown not quite understand. Well, why would you do that? Why would you want to be reminded of your last end? Uh, couldn't you sleep in a comfortable bed? Now, at the bottom of 2298, Gabriel begins his speech. Though right before it, we get another of these references to snow. People perhaps were standing in the snow on the quay outside, gazing up at the lighted window and listening to the waltz music. The air was pure there. In the distance lay the park where the trees were weighted with snow. The Wellington Monument wore a gleaming cap of snow that flashed westward over the white field of 15 acres. So again, he is imagining being out in the snow rather than being where he is. So he begins, you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and he follows his, um, uh, his outline fairly well. He starts with Irish hospitality. He says, I feel more strongly with every recurring year that our country has no tradition which does it so much honor and which it should guard so jealously as that of hospitality. He talks about the tradition of genuine, warm-blooded, courteous Irish hospitality, which our forefathers have handed down to us, and which we in turn must hand down to our descendants, is still alive among us. Um, and then he notices Miss Ivers is not there. Um, she had gone away discourteously. Uh, well, actually, she didn't seem all that discourteous now. He's interpreting it that way. But here he's adding in, the even though she's not there, and this was kind of aimed at her, he's still putting in there. It says, this new generation in this thought-tormented age, hyper-educated, uh, lack all those qualities of humanity, of hospitality, of kindly humor, which belonged to an older day. Listening tonight to the names of all those great singers of the past, it seemed to me, I must confess, that they were living in a less spacious age, that we were living in a less spacious age. So he connects this idea. Again, the, the, the new generation is not as good as the old generation. Things used to be so much better. Uh, this, this hyper-educated, thought-tormented, well, if anyone is hyper-educated and thought-tormented, it seems to be Gabriel. He doesn't seem to realize that that's, he's diagnosing himself as much as anyone else. Um, and he wants to cherish in our hearts the memory of those dead and, gone, and great gone ones who framed, who, whose fame the world will not willingly let die. Uh, so here again, the, the idea of the dead uh, who, who, whose fame will not die. And that, of course, leads to the next topic in his speech, the, the sadder thoughts, the sad memories of those who are, who are gone, of the, of the departed, the dead. Uh, then, you know, at the top of 2300, he has, talks about the three graces, that is, um, the, his two aunts and his cousin, um, Aunt, Aunt Julia, Aunt Kate, and Mary Jane. 
And he brings in the idea, idea of Paris, who had to choose who was the most lovely of three goddesses. And he says, well, I will not attempt to choose between them. There's no way you can choose between them. Uh, they're all equally beautiful. Now, notice that Gabriel does not give any recitation from Browning or anything else. He cuts that out. He, he, he had his doubts. He decided against it. He wasn't going to put that in. So you can see he is a very cautious man. He, he cut that out. That was not something that he always has in the speech. So he wants to make sure he doesn't have it this year. Again, being very cautious. Now, after the speech, and they have a they they sing a song for they are jolly good fellows. Um, the, the the party kind of breaks up. It's at the end, and people we're seeing people off. Uh, and, you know, people are telling jokes, but then uh, around twenty three oh three. Gabriel is downstairs, and he looks upstairs and sees his wife there on on the on the stairs on the landing, listening to what's going on upstairs. It says uh, a woman was standing near the top of the first flight in the shadow. Also, he could not see her face, but he could see the terracotta and salmon pink panels of her skirt, which uh, the shadows made appear black and white. It was his wife. She was leaning on the banister listening to something. Gabriel was surprised at her stillness and strained his ear to listen also, but he could hear little save the noise of laughter and dispute on the front steps, a few chords struck on the piano, and a few notes of a man's voice singing. So Greta, his wife, is he sees her and sees how she is enraptured in, in by what she's listening to, but he can't hear it himself. Uh, he says there were there was grace and mystery in her attitude, as if she were a symbol of something. He asked himself what a woman standing on the stairs in the shadow, listening to distant music, a symbol of. If he were a painter, he would paint her in that attitude. Her blue felt hat would show off the bronze of her hair against the darkness, and the uh, and the panel of her skirt would show off the light the light ones. Distant music, he would call the picture, if he were a painter. Uh, so it's this artistic moment, this kind of beautiful, you know, it makes him want to paint a picture, uh, you know, called distant music. Uh, uh, that's it, it seems weighty and symbolic and, and lovely to him. Uh, and it turns out that it's uh, Mr. Bartell Darcy. Uh, he's singing an old Irish song. And we find out uh, the the top of twenty three o four that the reason that uh, Mr. Darcy has refused to sing is that he has a cold, and uh, it's the weather," said Aunt Julia after a pause. "Yes, everybody has colds," said Aunt Kate readily. "Everybody," they say," said Mary Jane. "We haven't had snow like this for, like it for thirty years, and I read this morning in the newspaper that snow is general over all all over Ireland." Uh, I love the look of snow," said Aunt Jane, Julia sadly. Um, so th there again, we're uh, the idea of cold, of illness, of snow, all coming into this. And in the middle of all this conversation, he's looking at his wife, who doesn't, who isn't paying attention. She was in the same attitude and seemed unaware of the talk about her. At last, she turned towards them, and Gabriel saw that there was color on her cheeks and that her eyes were shining. A sudden tide of joy went leaping out of his heart. So, it, it, he's again, he's, he's 
it's really touched something in him, this, uh, this mood that his wife is in, though, as we'll see, he is misinterpreting it. Look at his reactions on uh, page 2305. The blood went bounding along his veins, and the, thought, and the thoughts went riding through his brain. Proud, joyful, tender, valorous. Uh, he, he's now having kind of flashbacks. Moments of their secret life together burst like stars upon his memory. A heliotrope envelope was lying beside the bed, bed breakfast cup, and he was caressing it with his hands. Birds were twittering in the ivy, and the sunny web of the, of the curtain was shimmering along the floor. He could not eat for happiness. They were standing on the crowded platform, and he was placing a ticket inside the palm of her glove. He was standing with her in the cold, looking in through the, uh, a grated window at a man making bottles in a roaring furnace. It was very cold. Her face, fragrant in the cold air, was quite close to his, and suddenly she called out to the man at the furnace, "'Is the fire hot, sir?' But the man could not hear her with the noise of the furnace. It was just as well he might have answered rudely. A wave of yet more tender joy escaped his heart, and he went coursing in, uh, went coursing in warm flood of along his arteries, like the tender fire of, of stars, moments of their life together. So all these flashbacks, and notice the one that it lingers on, is the two of them out in the cold, seeing the hot furnace inside, and you know asking, "Is the fire hot?" Um, and so he has all of these these images, and this is almost very close to the kind of stream of consciousness that uh, uh, Joyce is so famous for. There's these little fragmentary images uh, that he's having of all of these happy moments of their life together. So that's what uh, seeing her and her reaction to the music is doing to him. It's making him see her as beautiful. It's reminding them of their life together. Uh, it, it's it's getting him you know very excited. And he says in, in uh, it says in the middle of twenty three oh six that he was he felt proud and happy then, happy that she was his, proud of her grace and wifely carriage. But now, after the kindling again of so many memories, the first touch of her body, musical and strange and perfumed, sent through him a king pang of lust. So now he's, he's, he's sexually aroused. He's turned on by his wife. Uh, she belongs to him. It says that his arms were trembling with desire to seize her. So this is, they're, they're going into the hotel room. They're not going to uh, go home tonight. They're going to rent a hotel room and go home in the morning. Um, and it says that uh, he tells the, 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 the man who brought them to their room that we don't want any light. Uh, so there they are kind of in the dark with just the light from the, uh, the street outside. And he's very, you know, he's very excited. He's actually thought about what this moment would be like, and he, she would come to him, and they would embrace. And he says, the top of 2307, Greta? She turned away from the mirror slowly and walked along the shaft of light towards him. Her face looked so serious and weary that the words would not pass Gabriel's lips. No, it was not the moment yet. You look tired, he said. So he was going to, uh, you know, embrace her. No, it's, it's not that moment. He says, by the way, Greta? He tries again. What is it? You know that poor fellow Malins, he said quickly. Yes, what about him? Um, well, he, he can't, 
he he can't kind of make the the deal. She's not connecting with him the way he thought she would. He says, why did she seem so abstracted? He did not know how he could begin. Was she annoyed? She annoyed too about something? If she would only turn to him, to come to him of her own accord, to take her as, as she was would be brutal. No, he must see some ardor in her eyes first. He longed to be master of her strange mood. She's not behave. you know, he's all excited and in love and wants to make love to her, and she seems very distracted and not interested in that at all. And she does come to him, and he asks her at the top of 2308, Greta, dear, what are you thinking about? It turns out, she says, oh, I am thinking about the song, The Lass of Ogram. That's the song that uh, the Darcy was singing at the uh, after the party that she heard. He said, it makes her cry. He says, why does it make you cry? Why, Greta, he asked. I'm thinking about a person long ago who used to sing that song. And who was the person long ago, asked Gabriel, smiling. He was a person I used to know in Galway when I was living with my grandmother, she said. The smile passed from Gabriel's face. A dull anger began to gather again at the back of his mind, and the dull fires of his lust began to glow angrily in his veins. Someone you were in love with? he asked ironically. It was a young boy I used to know, she answered, named Michael Fury. He used to sing that song, The Lass of Ogram. He was very delicate. Gabriel was silent. He did not wish her to think that he was interested in this delicate boy. So now this is not going the way, he, like like so many of his, his encounters this evening, it's not going the way he thought. She's talking about this this boy that she knew when she was a girl, Michael Fury, even that name, isn't that a great name, Michael Fury, uh, that he would sing that song. And so we get this exchange between them. I can see him so plainly, she said after a moment. Such eyes as he had, big, dark eyes, and such an expression in them, an expression. Oh, then you were in love with him, said Gabriel. I used to go out walking with him, she said, when I was in Galway, and a thought flew across Gabriel's mind. Perhaps that was why you wanted to go to Galway with the Ivers girl, he said coldly. She looked at him and asked in surprise, what for? Her eyes made Gabriel feel awkward. He shrugged his shoulders and said, How do I know? To see him, perhaps. She looked away from him, along the shaft of light towards the window in silence. He is dead, she said at length. He died when he was only seventeen. Isn't it a terrible thing to die so young as that? So now, you know, it's, it's, it's not somebody alive that she's pining for. It's somebody who is, hmm, dead. The dead. Um... And we get, again, some of the uh, the internal thoughts of Gabriel, the top of 2309. He saw himself as ludicrous, a ludicrous figure, acting as a penny boy for his aunts, a nervous, well-meaning sentimentalist, orating to vulgarians and idealizing his own clownish lusts. So that's a very harsh, but uh, I think not totally inaccurate interpretation of how he's been behaving all this evening. But he does see that. And he asks about, you know, how did he die? He says, I think he died for me. And then a vague terror seized Gabriel uh, at this answer, as if at that hour when he had hoped to triumph, 
some implacable and vindictive being was coming against him, gathering of forces against him in its vague world. Um, so now, this is, again, this is not going all at all. So she tells the story. It was winter. He Again, he was a delicate boy. She was going away, and he was desperately in love with her. And then the night before I left, uh, he threw gravel against the window. Uh, he was... Uh, the he was there in the garden, the poor fellow at the end of the garden, shivering. And did you not? Uh, and did you not tell him to go back? Asked Gabriel. I implored him to go home at once and told him he would get his death in the rain, but he had said he did not want to live. I can see his eyes as well as as well as well. He was standing at the end of the wall where there was a tree. And did he go home? Yes, he went home. And when I was only a week in the convent. He died, and he was buried. Uh, so now this theme about, you know, you know you'll catch your death of cold, uh, you can't be too careful. Well, here's a guy who did uh, out, go out in the cold and was, and died. Uh, but it seems to be, at least the way Greta interprets it, is a, a passion for him, for herself. Uh, he was in love with her, and he didn't want to go on living if she left, and he literally died. And she goes on to sleep, but Gabriel stays up, and he's brooding over this, and about this man who had died for her sake. And he begins thinking about his Aunt Julia, that she's, she's, the, she's the older of the sisters, and uh, she's not in good shape. He sees that she's not going to live long. She'll be dead. He says, one by one, this is the bottom of 2310, they were all becoming shades. Better pass boldly into that other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age. He thought of how she who lay beside him had locked in her heart for so many years that image of her lover's eyes when he had told her that he did not wish to live. So now he's seeing that, you know, well, you know, maybe instead of kind of... of, of whimpering out into old age, it would be better, you know, go out in a blaze of glory, you know. Um, and then it says, generous tears filled Gabriel's eyes. A very important adjective there, generous. Uh, he's no longer self-obsessed as he's been through so much of this story about, you know, second-guessing himself, thinking about how it affects him. These are generous tears. He's crying for other people. He had never felt like that himself, towards any woman, he had, uh, but he knew that such a feeling must be love. So he was not like Michael Fury. He's never been, but he understands what that feeling would be. The tears gathered more thickly in his eyes, and in the partial darkness he imagined he saw the form of a young man standing under a dripping tree. Other forms were near. His soul had approached that region where dwell the vast hosts of the dead." He was conscious of, but could not apprehend, their wayward and flickering existence. His own identity was fading out into a gray, impal impalpable world, the solid world which uh, itself, which these dead had one time reared and lived, lived in, was dissolving and dwindling. So here he's thinking about the dead, about this, this young man who died. And then we get this this is a very famous final paragraph of the story. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. 
it had begun to snow again. So here the snow and the cold comes in. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Now that's a that's both a literal, he's thinking about going to Galway, uh, going to the west of Ireland, but also a journey westward to the setting sun, a journey towards death. Uh, it, it's both, wonderfully, it's both literal and very symbolic at the same time. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general over all over Ireland. So he's taking that weather report and thinking about it, again, in a larger symbolic term, not just that it's snowing, but there is something cold and frozen throughout all of Ireland, through his whole country. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly on the uh, bog of Allen, and further westward, softly falling into the dark, uh, munitious Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. So now he's imagining that snow falling on Michael Fury's grave. It lay thickly, drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones on the spears of the little great gate on the barren thorns. Again, snow on barren thorns on a grave. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Now, the, this is just beautiful writing. He's talked about the snow falling slowly, and now his soul is swooning slowly uh, and falling faintly, faintly falling, those beautiful echoes that it has. And it's not just on Ireland, it's through the universe. Uh, the last end, a snow on all the living and the dead. Now, Joyce is famous for his idea that the story, instead of having an action climax, has an emotional climax called an epiphany. It's a moment of realization. And that's a moment that Gabriel has here. Uh, now, what that realization is, is hard to put into other words than just reading the, the, the last paragraph. But it's about, it's about mortality. It's about life. It's about a wasted life. Uh, I think he feels that he has a, you know, who who is who's dead here? Michael Fury, who lived passionately, or Gabriel Con Conroy, who is alive, but is in some sense dead inside, who can't connect with the living people around him, who hasn't been able to do that all night. Um, and again, those generous tears, uh, and thinking about how it might have been better to be like Michael Fury than like Gabriel. Um, so this, this moment of, uh, and again, thinking that all of Ireland is snowed under, is frozen, is locked into this kind of paralysis. That's a theme that runs throughout, um, the Dubliners as a, as a short story collection. Um, so it come again, it comes to this beautiful kind of crescendo, very delicate moment. I mean, this isn't a big action scene. This is a moment where, uh, this man who had lacked self-knowledge finally comes to some moment of self-knowledge, of self-realization. Um, all right, well, 
that's all the time we have to discuss the dead. Uh, for next time, I would like you to read two poems by T.S. Eliot, who is uh, one of the, the giants of modernist poetry, uh, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock and The Hollow Men. Now, uh, particularly in Prufrock, I want you to think about it as a dramatic monologue. Uh, we've seen that with Robert Browning, and but T.S. Eliot uses that form very differently. Uh, he uses a kind of stream of consciousness uh, form in the poetry. And so uh, notice that, notice the repetitions that he uses in both poems and how he kind of builds up meaning through repetition and gives a sense of psychology of the, the, the speakers in his poems. All right, well, thank you for your attention, and we will discuss T.S. Eliot's poems, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock and The Hollow Men, next time.